Hey folks, welcome back to the Eat Well Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. In this episode, I'm joined by uh, Mike Bridger. And you would have heard Mike on the Eat Well Podcast a number of times now. We've, we've talked elk a couple times, and he also helped me build the Eat Wild online elk course. So if you're interested in learning more about elk hunting, you can find that on our website. I think it's about three or four hours of sort of our a deep dive into our strategies and techniques into how we have successful elk hunts. But today we're talking about deer hunting, specifically whitetail deer hunting. And more specifically, we're talking about stand hunting for whitetail deer and targeting matured bucks and using multiple techniques to try and put yourself in a good position to see lots of deer and ultimately see a mature deer present itself. Now, Mike lives up north where there's a, a high density of white-tailed deer, and he applies a system of scouting and using cameras and just putting the time in to find uh, great spots to set up his for his stand hunts. And um, over the years, he's had progressively more, more and more success. And this year, he got an incredible buck uh, named Chuck, which uh, if you've if seen this stuff on Instagram, you may you may have seen a few of his stories there. Um, I'll, I'll probably share a couple pictures of it uh, on on the Wild Instagram as we promote this episode. Anyways, it's a great. I really appreciate Mike coming on. So. You know, Mike know each other. We both work for the Ministry of Environment. Uh, Mike's a wildlife biologist and um, and uh, you know works in in wildlife management. This is really a, this is really just a talk mostly about hunting. So um, we won't dive too much into the the work that we do outside of our passion for hunting. Um, but yeah, you're gonna enjoy this episode. Mike's a great guy, and um, and uh, I love uh, yeah, just just getting the really understanding people's processes and, and uh, how they find success. And I, I really do appreciate uh, when folks are willing to share their knowledge and because uh, all this stuff, it takes a long time to figure this stuff out and apply it and, and have success ultimately. All right. So this podcast is brought to you by the folks at the iHunter app. And there was one thing that is part of Mike's process as he'll talk about, and it's, you know, everything starts with e-scouting. Everything starts with looking at, the land base through the tools like the iHunter app that give the ability to look at the different habitat, the different forest structures, then the different impacts the land has have. So, you know, up north in BC, there's a lot, this has been heavily impacted by oil and gas country. So there's cut lines in most areas, uh, but those will show up on your on the mapping tools available to you in the iHunter app. And that shows you access and it actually shows you, you know, also road density as well. So there are two really important factors that show sort of the, both the access point, but also a bit of fragmentation. But then you can also see where there's continuous mature forest and and the different types of habitat features that you may be um, keying in on in your e-scouting process. So the iHunter tool gives you the, the different mapping layers to show you those those key features that you may be looking at to sort of start the process of picking your spot to set up to hunt, or at least picking a spot to do some ground research, getting boots on the ground and sort of seeing how animals are using that area, the density of use. And the iHunter app is a starting point for that process. So I encourage you to uh, take advantage of the tool 
and it'll make you a better hunter, guaranteed. Anyways, let's get into this one with Mike Bridger. Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers, and in this podcast we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey, Mike. Thanks to have you back on the Eat Wild Podcast. How are you doing? Doing really well, thanks. Yeah, great to be back with you and chatting about hunting again. I feel like I could do this with you like twice a year, like kind of have like a a season wrap up maybe after the elk hunt season and then another one after the deer hunting season because I, I take a lot of inspiration from your from your posts uh on um just how much how many adventure well how many incredible interactions that you that, that at least your cameras have with with you know incredible wildlife here in, in your part of the world and um yeah it kind of it comes at a time when i'm you know in immersed in either elk hunting or then moving into the whitetail hunting season. And I think we both share a passion for both of those. So, yeah. So thanks for that. Keep, keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, yeah, I obviously I'm trying to get out as much as I can in the fall and well, even leading up to that. And when I can't get out myself, it's nice having some cameras out there to do some work for me too. And uh, yeah, I mean, as you know, I, I love all the scouting aspects that go into the hunting and, having the trail cameras out there and, and capturing all kinds of, of images and videos. You just never know what you'll, what you'll get on those cameras, but yeah, they're a great tool to help help with the scouting for sure. Hey, so when you, okay. So when you, what's kind of more exciting for you? Like when you're sitting in the stand and that, I, I you call it a, the, a buck you may have been following shows up or, or what, when you first see that buck on a camera, when it, when it shows up, what, what, which, which is more exciting? Honestly, it'll sound ridiculous, but to me, the camera checks are, I love, I love it. I live for checking cameras. Like when I know I've got a day coming up where I'm doing a big camera check and I'm maybe checking 10 cameras or something, that's like Christmas morning to me. I'm, I get so excited to get out there and yeah, you just never know. A lot of them lead to disappointment or just, you know, not much for content, but all it takes is that one photo or that one video to give you all the, you know, renewed hope or inspiration or a target to chase (laughs) for the next month or so. So yeah, I, yeah, seeing that, that special image pop up on, on a camera, I, I love that. I, I, I just, I've had both within that, what you did, your answer, I just had my first bust on my camera i've got i've got two cameras and i've been kind of i was lucky I, I dropped this one camera in a spot and it, it must be a spot because every there's always there's a consistent amount of game there's new game on it there's uh yeah like there's elk and, and black deer on it regularly and uh, and several different bucks and so but i probably tried five other spots now with the, the second camera with you know basically relatively nothing happening on on, on those um but I had a two week break and I, I switched my ca- the camera over to video to try, mm-hmm. try getting video. And I went and pulled the card and there's nothing on it. And I, I must've screwed up on the settings or something like that, or else yeah. nothing walked by in two weeks. But I, I suspect that something's, it's not triggering the, 
the the video, but it was heartbreaking. Like yeah. I was like I was so excited, oh. <laughs> and I and I saved I saved like I had the card, and I like oh I'm not gonna look at it yet. I gotta wait for another. I gotta wait till like sun goes down and Mickey and I can you know go look at the videos and uh, like no. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, that is, it can be such a huge letdown. I mean, I've played with these cameras for so many years, and I think I got a pretty good system for reducing sort of like failures or any sort of technical issues like that. But every once in a while, yeah, something happens, and you have such high hopes to go in and check that camera, and you look at it, and there's nothing on there. Something something went wrong. So that is, uh, yeah, one downside. Yeah. How, how long do you like? How long do you give a camera? Like, if you don't pull an image, like, if you don't, like, okay, well, two questions. Like, what, how many, like, what, how many images would you expect to see? I don't know, it's a relative question, I guess, but over a time period to make you feel, okay, this is a spot. I should continue to leave this camera here or, or pull it and try the next spot. Where's that threshold for you? Or can you even describe it? Hard to put a number on. I mean, it depends, I guess, what it's set up on, whether it's set up on a trail or a wallow or say a mineral lick or a bait site. Um, Yeah, it really depends. Um, I'm trying to to think how I put a number on that. I don't think there is a number. I think, you know, if you're putting it on a trail, you want to see decent activity like every day. And I guess it's going to depend on the season too, right? So there's so many factors, but uh, it's, it's a matter of like seeing good activity, seeing kind of the right animals or the right quality of the animal that you're looking for. And um, yeah, I think you get a pretty good sense of what you can expect before you even set the camera out just based on the sign in the area. So, um, but yeah, if I have a camera out, say for a few weeks and it's picking up very little, then yeah, I'm, I'm probably moving it. Yeah. Okay. I figured like, as even in the intro, as we were kind of going over what we're going to talk about, I kind of feel like we could just talk about cameras for three episodes based on what, even what I've just learned in the last like couple of questions. So, okay, well, maybe we'll stick to our plan a little bit and we'll come back to cameras and sign because I, I, I do. So the, the thought around this podcast is, um, in my, my last podcast, I had Jeff Horsfield on and he's a still hunter, uh, a lifetime still hunter, grew up on the Vancouver Island hunting black tails and in, in the big timber. And then kind of found his passion for still hunting for whitetails and also still hunted for elk actually in, in the piece and, and kind of dialing in that system as well with some calling thrown in. Um, but yeah, just deadly, deadly hunter. And, um, but you know, we just talked about you know what we get out of the experience of, of still hunting in the end and how effective it can be in certain environments and the limitations of still hunting. And I, and I was following your story this year and your track and I had some photos of an, well, several tremendous bucks, but one in particular who we'll meet here in a second. And, and one of the things I was thinking, I was like, wow, like it is like to see it, it's very difficult to put it together on a still hunt for a wise, older, mature animal. It's just very difficult. And, and I was like, man, I love my still hunting, but do should I, transition to being more of a dedicated sitter in order to elevate the opportunities to potentially find larger animals. So um, that's why I was excited to talk to you and to talk through that kind of compare and contrast the two different hunting styles and the benefits we get from it. Um, but maybe maybe you could tell me about Chuck and introduce us to Chuck and, and tell us a story. And I think that will probably introduce your system of hunting as well as you tell us about Chuck. Sure. 
Yeah, well, Chuck. So I always, I'm always on the fence about naming animals, first of all. Sometimes I think it's a little bit corny, but um, my girlfriend named him Chuck, and so roll with it. And it's sort of a nice, easy way of just identifying which buck you're talking about, right? So anyway, this buck was named Chuck. Um, yeah, and uh, so this year, like like I've been doing this for maybe four or five years, this sort of this different approach to whitetail hunting that's like heavily involved in setting up cameras and setting up mineral licks and setting up baits and setting up scrapes and sort of this kind of mass surveillance program, if you will, over, over quite a large area, lots of different sites. And I kind of start the process in the spring, like as soon as I can get out on, on the roads, as soon as the snow melts and the roads dry up, uh, I start getting sites prepared um, whether that's putting out minerals or clearing shooting lanes or kind of finding scrape sites from the year before. Um, and when I'm talking scrapes, I'm talking deer scrapes for your listeners where bucks come to these sites and they scrape on the ground and leave scent. Um, those are, are awesome spots to set up cameras to get a sense of what deer are around in a given year. And they start, they use those sites all through the year, but you notice they start hitting them more like in the summer and progressively as the fall comes on. So those are places I like to put cameras. So anyway, the year began like that. I was uh, kind of working several, maybe seven or eight sites throughout the spring and summer. And once the summer comes along, I, I start putting out the cameras. Once the, the bucks start growing antlers and you get a good sense of who's around and who's who and uh it's cool because once you've been doing it for a few years you start to you start to recognize individual bucks in these areas from year to year that have made it through the seasons and um i i enjoy that for sure seeing who comes back and who maybe doesn't come back and um as as the fall progressed um i start sort of working these sites more putting out more cameras um a lot of these sites are up here in the Northeast. It's pretty common um, strategy to do bait, do some baiting for, for deer up here. There's kind of two main strategies up here in the Northeast in the Peace region. It's, uh, you know, you're hunting in the timber and you're using bait or a lot of people hunt on private land and are hunting, you know, agricultural fields. So that's probably the, the two most, you know, the primary ways that people are hunting deer up here. So I don't hunt on any private land. These spots are all on crown land, um, so anyone can access them. And uh, anyway, so yeah, this fall, as November rolls around, the, the deer really start kind of showing up out of the woodwork. You start seeing new bucks on cameras, um, start working these bait, bait sites pretty hard. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I spent the first two weeks almost uh, like of the end of October and early November just checking cameras like every few days my cameras are hundreds of kilometers apart in some areas so you know i'm spending a lot of time covering ground just checking checking checking. so how long is the sweep like how long is it like if you set out to check your cameras for a day how long is yeah that i could maybe do it in a day like a full day okay so you know there some of the sites are within maybe 10 to 15 kilometers but then if i'd have to maybe have to head to another area that's maybe 60 kilometers away driving so, you know, covering a lot of ground in those shorter days in November to do a full check and maybe to put out some more bait than it, uh, yeah, it, it, it's pretty intensive. And of course, up here, we can't use those cellular or um, wireless cameras. So you got to go check every camera manually. So it's a bit of work involved for sure, a bit of time and 
money and gas and uh but anyway i there was plenty of nice bucks showing up as the rut kind of started for white-tailed deer in november and um some tempting ones for sure and you know i'm pretty i guess selective at this approach where i just love to keep looking for new bucks and looking for like a specific one that really gets me excited and um yeah sure enough i think it was on it was already November 10th. I'd maybe, I'd only hunted a few days, but I'd spent it many, many days checking sites. And um, yeah, just like we were talking about before, just one camera check kind of changes everything. And I was scrolling through photos and seeing lots of familiar bucks. And then all of a sudden one photo of a, a brand new buck who I'd never seen. Um, so no history with this deer named Chuck, but I could tell right away he was a real beautiful deer. Uh, mature, mature whitetail, like everything I'm kind of looking for and just gave me, a, you know, an exciting sort of target to focus on and, and hunt for the next little while. And so I checked the camera on November 10th and I had photos and videos of him on November 8th and November 9th, both during the daylight and at nighttime. So that's a good sign that, you know, he's hitting these cameras, hitting the scrapes or the baits during daylight um, so I knew he was in the area and then at that point you just hope that he's still in the area because uh, a lot of the time in the rut like these bucks will come through these sites maybe check for scent and then they're off they could be kilometers away by the next day and may never return so you kind of hope he stays around and so once I sort of realized he existed then I actually started hunting the site so I hadn't even hunted in there at all uh, yet this year and um, then I started going into the ground blinds and I think I hunted maybe a day and a half with, with no sightings of him. And then, yeah, the story of, of actually getting Chuck. So I went in early in the morning, just at kind of first light and I start hiking towards my ground blind and of hiking through the timber and I can, I can get from behind the ground blind, I can start to see the bait and I could actually see that there was lots of deer around that morning. So it makes it really hard to get into the ground blind mm, um, yep. without spooking deer. Tell, tell me what your ground blind looks like. Yeah, what, it's just, what, what are uh, we talking about? it's like a pop-up. So it's like a, you know, a commercial ground blind. It's, it's uh, one of these ones that pops up sort of like a little tent almost. It's camouflage. I usually set them up in October. Um, I don't want to put them out too early so the bears don't wreck them. Um, but I also want to get them out a bit early so the deer become sort of familiar with them. And I brush them in, you know, like most people do, you kind of conceal them with branches and things like that. So, so they sort of blend in with the natural environment. And I try to set them back maybe about a hundred yards from whatever, whether I'm on a cut line or if it's a bait that I'm watching, I try to set them back to give you, you know, a bit of space. And, uh, yeah, so that's the ground blind setup. They just have a chair in them and, um, Nothing too fancy, but just a nice way to... So do you have eight ground blinds and eight chairs ready to go for all your sites? I have. So by the time November rolls around, I try to narrow it down to like five sites. Okay. So yeah, I have five ground blinds and, you know, five sites set up and that's plenty to manage. Um, any more than that, it's just, it's just too much to manage, frankly. So for me anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's the setup um so that yeah that morning i was sneaking in and i could see deer in the area so i kind of i got probably maybe 80 yards um from behind the bait or sorry from behind the blind 
and I had to wait there. Like I couldn't get any closer without spooking deer. And so deer mingling, there's little bucks chasing does around and lots of activity. Uh, and it was snowing pretty heavily that morning too, actually. And so I, I hunker down waiting for my chance to sneak in and yeah, time goes by and time really goes by. It was two and a half hours. I had to just sit on the ground before I could actually sneak into the blind. And so the deer kind of disappeared there for a moment. And yeah, after two and a half hours of waiting. So at that point I I snuck in, got into the blind, um, sort of put my pack down and set my gun up on a tripod. And I wasn't, I hadn't even had time to close the door behind me. Like just the timing of how everything worked out was incredible. I hadn't even closed the door behind me when I started to see a mature buck coming in one of the trails. And I, you know, I got my binoculars out and blast him and I was, I was pretty sure that was Chuck. I could see his dark face, mature buck, and he was coming through the trees and I was like, oh yeah, that's him. And so I was sort of steadied behind my gun, waiting for him to come out into a shooting lane. And the next thing I see is Chuck's running away, like his tail's in the air and he's running away from my shooting lanes. And I was like, oh my goodness, I... I checked my wind and the wind was fine. And I, I was pretty, I, well, I was quite confident he didn't see me. I'm concealed. I wasn't moving, but now in my head, I'm like, well, not my hunt's done for the day. And me, he, this deer, you know, these big wise old, uh, white tails, like this buck may never come back to this site if he saw something or smelled something he didn't like. So I was already in my mind. I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll have to give this spot a week or like, maybe I should just pull out now. And, Anyway, I sat there and not a minute later, all of a sudden I see Chuck coming back, creeping through the timber and um, yeah, thank goodness he, he came back and came out in front of, of me into my shooting lane and gave me a shot and uh, yeah, that was, uh, the rest was history. And uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, you know, it's, it was great how it all came together nicely and uh, yeah, I was pretty, pretty tickled. It's pretty methodical, your process, though. It's very, like, it's you definitely have a process that you put on repeat, and, right, yeah, it's neat. I mean, it... Yeah, trying. I mean, yeah, like, I, I should say I'm far from an expert at this, I, but I, I've, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time trying this process over the last four or five years, and the last few years, it, it has started to reap some some rewards, so I think it's a it's a tactic that can pay off especially you know i mean it's a kind of a strategic tactic maybe for for targeting mature deer or specific deer um but it's one of many tactics i'm mean, sure we will talk about a few other options but um yeah well it's also very privileged in the sense that you can have access to this hunt zone within a you know a day's work can check your cameras or do this work so you can kind of yeah, you have, I mean, the benefit of living where you live, it gives you this opportunity. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I've been feeling very fortunate because of my recent move back to the Sunshine Coast at least puts us into deer terror, like, you know, black tail deer habitat. It's not high density deer zone or anything like that, but it's, there are a few deer here. So if you put the time in, you can figure it out. Um, but just even putting the time in is fun. I'm figuring out the process is fun. And like, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm enjoying that. Yeah. I can see how this camera thing can get pretty darn addictive and just to see what's out there and kind of what story the, the, the land will tell you over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Super addictive. I mean, you, you know, I'm sort of obsessed with it and I probably go to a level that, you know, 
you don't really need to go to, but I, yeah, it's just so much fun and it's a great way to spend all, you know, your weekends throughout the season from the spring through the summer and hunting, hunting season just makes up kind of almost a small part of the whole, the whole process. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Are you slightly disappointed after you pull the trigger and the hunt's over and a yeah, a little bit, honestly, because, yeah, like we've talked about, it's this whole process leading up to it. It's the excitement of checking cameras and looking for new deer and all that that I really love. Um, yeah, pulling the trigger is, yeah, just such a small piece of it. Um, I'm always excited about, you know, what you get out of it at the end of the day. But, yeah, as soon as as soon as my tag's cut, I'm already thinking about next year. And generally, I just start scouting for new areas as soon as my tags had, or, you know, I'll take out some friends, some new hunters or, or have some other friends come up and hunt. And that's how I kind of fill the rest of the hunting season. But, um, yeah, that the, the tag cutting makes up a real small part of the whole process. Yeah. Fair enough. So you, you're talking about, you know, scouting and stuff. I I'm curious about what you key in on when you start to want to take a closer look at an area. So so you're, tell me a little bit about your scouting process. What are you looking for? What are you thinking about? What's your process? Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time e-scouting, um, looking at a lot of satellite imagery just to start with. As far as like features, I, you know, I'm trying to get into areas that require a bit of work to get into, you know, where the access isn't great, right? So you're sort of cutting out um, that pressure from other hunters um, so having said that, I mean, lots of these white tailed deer live in pretty high pressured areas. So sometimes that's sort of unavoidable, but I'm looking for like big tracks of, of timber, mature timber, maybe with linear features, um, like old seismic lines or cut lines. That's pretty, those are pretty common up here in the Northeast. And those happen to be like, those always are, are used as travel corridors for deer or there's lots of spots where they cross these cut lines that make for good uh, good areas to focus on um yeah i try to sort of find these areas where there's a bit of agriculture where deer are known to feed so you've got that food source and then lots of timber nearby where those deer may move off those feeding sources to bed during the day um generally the well the the agricultural areas are generally private land so you try to find those surrounding areas that are crown land and have, have public access and yeah just separating myself trying to make it a little hard to get into and um, just get in there and then I started looking for for trails um, look for depending on what time of year it is I mean you're looking for sign on the ground if there's snow obviously you're looking for tracks and scrapes and uh, looking for rubs and just general sign of uh deer activity and specifically deer activity like during that time of year when you're going to be in there hunting because just because you find deer in the spring or summer doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be there in november so really looking for those those kind of rutting signs you know the scrapes and the rubs is key yeah yeah they yeah for sure how early will a deer make a rub do you have a a sense of when when do they actually start doing that yeah well they earliest they might do it yeah they rub Throughout the year, I'd say the only time they don't really rub is when they have velvet on, when they're when they're still growing their antlers. But come like late August, when that velvet starts shedding, they'll start rubbing. They'll rub to get that velvet off at the end of August, early September, and then, and then yeah, I've seen I've seen fresh rubs all throughout um, September and October leading up to the rut, and then I've seen some rubs late in the year too. Um, I don't know what 
necessarily what the purpose of rubbing late, like into December and January is for a buck, but I, I've seen them definitely seen sign of that happening. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I, I would say that I've seen like, I sort of, I always think, think of, I rarely see, um, rubs say up in the Alpine, it's a, but you often, you will see like the odd rub at yeah. 6,000 feet and you know that the deer would likely be long gone yeah. by the time, you know, the rutting period starts in late October, November, but I mean, they're still, yeah. I mean, either hanging on up there and getting ready or more likely just starting to beat out some trees in September. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. I mean, if you see, you know, if you watch deer any time of year, you see them start to play around with branches and trees with their antlers. So I think it's it's fairly common. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's amazing. Like, I just think about this, like, I've probably learned more about whitetail behavior from just watching your videos, like watching the, and, and I mean, and, and it's so common now that you can find this wildlife cam footage. Mm -hmm and video like it just shows just their character because you know they're they're such incredibly wise animals like no matter how good you are in the woods at kind of being in the woods when they're in the woods and observing them like the the 90 percent of the 99 percent of the time they're, they're aware that something's not quite right and they're not acting 100 percent like like deer and you really only see that through the lens um where they're totally undisturbed and i like yeah, I was just like I was really enjoying some of the this is some of the just how much they play around with um just the the that overhanging branch above yeah. the scrape. Yeah. And like I've always wondered, like I was like, I always see a scrape on the ground and then above it there's like a little branch hanging over the the um the scrape. And I'm always wondering why like, why do they put like I can only assume it's something about scent or whatever, yeah. but can you, can you tell me a little bit what they're up to when they're when they're scraping and then when they're playing with that branch above them? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, a lot of people will call that a licking branch, and that you know is fairly accurate description of what's happening there. But there's a few things like so that yeah that overhanging branch that you're talking about. Um, usually it's around sort of head height for the deer, right? And so they'll be scraping on the ground, and you know if you see in some of my trail cam videos, they're rubbing their face on it or they're rub knocking their antlers against it or sometimes you'll actually see them biting it and sort of chewing on it so it's for all those things uh, they do definitely grab a hold of it and bite and chew on it i'm not sure exactly what the purpose of that is but if you look closely what you'll notice is that they often rub it on their kind of their nose bridge or their forehead and that's where mm -hmm. that what they call the preorbital gland is right in front of the eye and that's a scent marking feature for for deer so okay. that's the main purpose of that branch is to leave scent with their preorbital gland. And often, yeah, the sequence is they'll come up to that, they'll come to the scrape, probably sniff the ground, then they reach up and start playing with that branch, leave the preorbital scent. And then nine times out of 10, they'll probably scrape the ground a bit and then they'll hunch over and, and pee in the, in the scrape. And you see that behavior really consistently. So it's kind of a dual scent marking place. Mm. Uh, post for them so scent marking on the branch and then scent marking on the ground hmm. and and so will you see different bucks mark the same scrape yeah over time absolutely yeah so that's that's kind of the nice thing about it is it, it lots of bucks want to come scent check these scrapes right so you get a pretty good sense of who's in the area because 
most of these scrapes are common scrapes where they're shared by multiple bucks. So they can come through and have a little sniff and see who's around. And then they themselves will leave their own scent for the, the next buck to, to check. So yeah, that's uh, that's one benefit of finding, especially these larger scrapes. They often call them communal scrapes uh, where you can see like they, where they get a lot of usage or maybe there's a really large area, maybe four to five feet on the ground mm-hmm. that's been completely scraped out and you can see there's a branch there that's been chewed and gets a lot of use that's probably a communal scrape and um, if you put a camera there you'll probably see the majority of the bucks that are in that area over a period of time will come come check out that scrape and leave their scent will they do it in the day yep yep for sure i mean i yeah i probably get it just, it just depends on where it is in proximity to where they might be during the day. Like, but if you find scrapes near their bedding areas, certainly they're, they're using them in the daytime. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah. Kind of a, so I often see scrapes on the way in to where I like to hunt and I guess, and I, but I've never really like sat and watched actually the first buck I, uh, shot at and missed. I was very young, twelve or something like that, and I was sitting on a scrape, and and a, and a little two point buck came wandering in and and uh, wandered down the trail above the scrape and stopped and saw me at about I don't know ten feet away or something like that, and and I had I, had, I wasn't sure if it was a white tail or not. I was uh, <laughs> had to like really <laughs> had to really I'd really wanted to turn around and lift up his tail for me so I yeah. could be absolutely sure before I shot him. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and yeah, it didn't all come that, together. Yeah, on that point, I mean, I find that the the bucks really use those scrapes a lot, like in late October leading up to the rut, and then early in November when sort of that early rut stage. I think the deer are really moving, the bucks are really moving around to see who's in their area. And I, I, I noticed the activity tails off a little bit as the rut sort of prolongs, like the, then the bucks just become so focused on does specifically. So I noticed the activity goes down uh, a bit. Yeah. But um, I was going to say, you know, you might hear, or your listeners might hear the term uh, mock scrape. So like a fake scrape. And, and that's one tool that I utilize uh, a fair bit and that's essentially just creating your own scrape that the deer mm. then take over so in pretty much everywhere that I'm setting up cameras or that I have baits I if there isn't a pre-existing scrape that I know of I'll set my own mock scrape and it's a pretty simple process I mean you find an area where the deer are certain to travel like off a trail or what have you or on a cut line and then you might look for one of those natural overhangs like we talked about like they often like to scrape underneath conifer trees like spruce uh, specifically so uh, or if if you don't have uh, sort of overhanging branches a lot of the time i'll just tie uh, with a branch i'll cut a branch that's maybe like three quarters inch diameter and tie it up above and just have it hanging vertically over a a spot that I'm going to create a scrape. So hmm. you create the licking branch and then it's just a matter of, you know, kicking away the dirt and kind of making a disturbance on the ground, kick it down to the soil. And uh, throughout the spring and summer, I add my own scent. You can actually buy preorbital gland scent. It's synthetic. So it's legal to use in British Columbia. Um, mm-hmm. You can add that preorbital gland to the, the hanging st- or the licking branch. And then you can buy there's tons of different brands and makes of synthetic deer pee. And I'll, I'll add that to the ground on the scrape and just start creating its own, yeah, its own 
their own scents and its own scrape. And then over time, you'll notice those deer will start to notice it throughout the spring and summer, and then they'll start to utilize it. And by the time November comes, all those bucks are making, you know, leaving their own scent and you don't even have to do anything to it anymore. The bucks just kind of take it over after that. So that's a really good tool. Uh, people can use it to create their own scrapes. So it's funny. Cause I, I know what I'm going to actually, I don't actually hunt where there's scrapes because there's a correlation between like, they don't ever make a scrape in a nice place to hunt. If no. you're a still hunter, that's the opposite, actually the opposite. So, so a lot of the places that I like to go still hunting, I have to bust through some thicker challenging stuff. And usually I'm following an old deactivated road that's long grown over and, and there'll just be a certain point where I'm like, Oh, I'm going to see a scrape here any second. And then boom, you'll see a series of scrapes. And then I end up sort of pushing past all that and then get to where it's nice again, where I can sort of still hunt. I got some view quarters. I can see, I can sneak and hopefully I catch them out in that more open forest as opposed to say sitting on the scrape. So I, I've never invested the time of sitting on those scrapes in the thicker country right and whereas i hoping to kind of catch them out there with like my sort of feeling is that the does are out feeding in the more open stuff or or at least i can i'll just hunt them where i can get them i guess is the sure. other thought yeah but yeah. yeah so so do you have a so so what what does that spot look like in terms of you, like for you what where do you anticipate finding scrapes I I th- think the best bet is usually on sort of like the edge of some sort of feature I find, especially yeah, on the edge of like kind of what you described on the edge of something thick and maybe something a little more open. Definitely like, like I mentioned, these linear features up here that are pretty common in the peace region, like seismic lines or old cut lines or old, you know, little logging roads, skid trails. Those areas are the bucks kind of cruise. They use them as a travel corridor anyway. And um yeah, those are generally the types of features where you're more likely to find them consistently. Certainly, there's some that are just seem fairly random throughout the timber and kind of hard to plan around those. But uh, yeah, I would look for those those edge features, those edge habitats. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think you may have already kind of alluded to this, but so you've got this process where you're you're getting out your scouting, you're picking a spot to put a camera uh, maybe you could break that down for me a little bit about like you, you've done the scouting you found an area where there's a frequency of scrapes and such um, what are some basics of like how you're going to capture this information and I'm, I'm always thinking about like getting in and out of a place too like mm-hmm. like every time you go in and out you're you're bringing your scent your humanness and yeah how does that affect like the frequency of a well, two questions. First one, how do you set it up? And then the second one is like, how do you limit your impact going forward uh, as you collect the cards and collect the data? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, these are some pretty advanced like t- techniques we're talking about here. So I hope I hope some of your <laughs> listeners are still following. But that well, is, it is such a good point, though, to consider. Um, it's not just as easy as like, okay, find a spa- spot and just plunk a blind there and just walk in and out freely. Like, that's definitely something I'm factoring in is like how I can access it without doing any damage. And I say damage, I mean like without spooking deer basically, because I think, you know, there's nothing worse than spooking a deer in it coming in and out of your blind. That's probably like the cardinal sin. 
So having that access is really key. So for me, I often, I'll have a different access route to the site. Like if it's a bait site, I'll have a separate access route where I can maybe get a quad in there. I can hike in there easily. And then I'll cut, usually cut or just clear a little trail, sort of a, I call it like a backdoor trail to get to the blind where I'm, I'm not walking through my site at all. Hopefully I, you know, try to find a spot where I have cover leading right up to my blind. And then, you know, I, I kind of mentioned that I, I usually have say maybe like five sites that I'm going to hunt throughout the fall. And I try to orient them a bit differently, but, um, like as far Ooh, as like cardinal smart, directions yeah. go. So, you know, the wind is a huge factor. Like you don't want to sit in your blind if you know your wind's going to be pushing down right towards sort of whatever the feature is that you're watching, whether it's a bait or a cut line or scrape line. So I usually have baits that are, or sorry, blinds that are oriented at different, for different wind directions. So if the wind's really bad one day and I know I can't sit this site without spooking deer, then I'll just go to the other site where I know the wind's in my favor. So sort of it's good to know your prevailing winds in the area that you're hunting so you know most often where you can set your blind so that you're downwind most of the time but then when the weather changes you might have a cold front coming in that wind direction switches so now you want to make sure you have at least one other option where you can go sit that day and uh and not be spooking deer with scent so yeah those are a couple of the the factors for sure access is is really key and i I spent a lot of time thinking about that when i set these spots up so that's a good point yeah i had a i'll tell i I might have told this on another podcast but i'll tell you my story my my uh oh man i i I, like the last few years i've had some real heartbreaker white tail hunts like just special deer that oh like it's so great to see them eh? when you see these special deer and when when it doesn't work out it's so heartbreaking but but i guess that's what keeps you coming back but um so i've got a spot that i i have a couple spots i do like to sit and particularly in the evenings i'll sit for a couple hours and um and uh the spot i'm going into it's a straight up spot so i get out to get on the truck like i grind up like very steep hill as steep as i can you know pretty much uh climb and and it rolls off onto a nice bench and it's a it's kind of a nice piece of old, old, older timber and a bit of grass. And for some reason that deer really like this bench and they will bed down and they'll go back and forth on it. So it's a nice spot to sit in the evenings because they kind of roll off the hills and go down towards the agricultural end eventually. Um, but as I'm climbing, I, I take off my layers off as before I climb the hill, just so I don't sweat it up too much. And I bust it straight up and it's probably like 30 minutes of bust and, and I get, I'm climbing just to where like the little, I got a little blind built with some sticks and logs to kind of sit in, but I have to roll over the top of this little ridge so that where I can then see above me and I can see uh, the timbered hill above me and I can see this sort of this rocky bluffy slope um, just to my right, all of which is deery. And before I roll over the top and into my blind, I give everything a good glass, right? Like have a look at everything before I bust out because I have to like unfortunately I built the blind in the wrong spot. I should have built it somewhere where I have a hundred percent cover mm-hmm. rolling into the blind. Sure. So I have to take three steps to go over the, <laughs> go over the, the ridge I'm exposed. And then, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I'm, as I, I have a tree, unfortunately that I can lean against and I can have a little look before I roll in and I look up the hill and I see a couple does bedded down. So I'm like, Oh shoot. They're, they're with 150 yards away or hundred yards away. So like I might be able to sneak in, but I'll look at them for a while. And then I look up into the, to my right, up into sort of the blo- the, the bluffy, rocky stuff. And I just catch the tiniest bit of movement. 
and it's a little bit of a white let's see a little bit of white behind a stump about 40 yards from me mm. and i mean i see a little bit it, and i looked at it and i was like oh that's a deer's nose sticking out from behind a stump and I look at it through my binoculars and sure enough, all I see is like two nostrils or one nostril, the side of its nostril and the white ring of the, of the white tail nose. I'm like, well, it's a white tail buck. And it's like, and it's uh, bedded down behind that stump. And sorry, I don't know what's a buck yet. Cause I think you just see the, the ring. And then I can see something moving above its nose, but it's about like, it's about a foot and a bit above its nose, like maybe a foot and a half. And I could see a couple of, but a couple of sticks moving above its head. Like, oh, Jesus, that's a, pretty good buck and for around where we hunt in the south like it's a it's a like i can ma- i can see the distance i'm like oh that's a pretty good buck and it's very heavy it's got these two forks sticking out it's really heavy too i'm like oh boy that's a nice deer oh dear that's... so i get kind of excited and i'm like oh this is great like i got a tree he's bedded down this is all good like this is this is perfect right so all right so i'm gonna ask you what, what would you do in this situation so you're like you bedded down 100 sure it's a buck yeah, I, for me, like, I just, yeah, anytime I got to, like, move or anything when hunting or dealing with whitetails, you're just at such a massive disadvantage. So I guess in that situation, I would, I would try to freeze and not move a muscle. And I guess I'd probably wait for it to make the first move. I mean, anytime you move with whitetails around, you just put it, I find it's just, you put yourself at a huge disadvantage because they, uh, they're just built for picking up movement and noise. And so, yeah, I, I would freeze and hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. So I go through all these scenarios in my head. And of course you like you, the first thought is like, well, I could just like three steps over and maybe I can just see enough of his face and I can get him, you know, if I can just get over a little bit, but I'm like, I like you, like a, I know I just, that's not, I mean, it'll disappear. If it sees movement this close to it, that it's not expecting it'll 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 blow out of here i can't can't do that okay don't do that it's dumb and i'm like okay well i should just i should just sit here and wait till he stands up that's a good idea that's the right idea and then i'm like oh but i've got this like grunt that my buddy believe you know tells me about all the time he's like oh you, you know i could probably just grunt at him and maybe he'd just stand up and like i can't see his body or nothing but like two st- like you know directly in front of him directly behind him there's like good shooting corridors like if he just got up and took one step or mostly just stood up he'd probably but to have a good look at him. And I'm like, well, that's dumb. No, just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. Because that's the, that's the right thing. I know better. So just wait. Well, I'm like in my t-shirt and it's cold. And I like am hanging in there for a while. But then I start to realize I'm like, well, I can't dig into my pack if they're like throwing layers on because that's not going to work, right? And then that'll get them up. And so I'm like, well, I start shivering. I'm like, okay, well, options are like, do I sneak over? Or do I blow the grunt call? Okay, what would you do? Well, I, I guess I'd go for the grunt call because I'm not moving, but I might try to, yeah, pique his curiosity and hope for the best. Yeah. All right. Well, I blew I blew the grunt call and he just exploded, like, <laughs> like just changed area codes right now. Just like not even a thought about like, not curious at all. Just yeah. kaboom and gone. I'm like, oh. Huh. Yeah, that's that's a heartbreaker. I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> hindsight, I don't know what you'd do differently. If you're freezing and shivering, you don't have many options at that point. But, uh, well, yeah, it's funny. Like, it brings up a good sort of point around calling deer, too. And that, that's another tactic. Like, I do have one spot where I have a tree stand as well. So I've mainly been talking about ground blinds. But I, I utilize a tree stand, too, in an area that's just 
sort of a travel corridor between it's on a little patch of crown land between fields that the deer feed in heavily. Mm-hmm. So that's another really fun way of hunting. It, it It's cool being up in the tree where, you know, the deer generally have no idea there. And again, just sort of watching deer be deer, but also a great, you know, early season. I, I love calling from those tree stands and um, I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert deer caller by any means, but I've had some luck with that grunt tube and, and rattling as well. Like this year, um, rattling from that tree stand, I remember I'd been sitting most of the morning and it had been pretty quiet and I'd been rattling off and on, nothing had come in and it was, yeah, I think it was middle of the day, maybe around noon. And I was in a sort of a rattling sequence, smashing these two antlers together. And, you know, people always say you got to have your head on a swivel when you're calling deer like that. Cause they can, well, they come in quietly and they can come in fast. And sure enough, I was rattling and looked over and before I could even stop clashing my antlers together, a buck had already run in. I didn't hear him until it was too late, a real big buck. And, but he came in so fast and came in so close, uh, you know, at that point he's expecting to see these deer that are rattling and fighting. Right. And, um, when he got to that, you know, he's only 30 yards away from my tree and he started looking around and became pretty sus- suspicious cause he didn't see what he's looking for. But yeah, that again, there's another good strategy and it and maybe an advantage of either yeah, sitting in a blind or sitting in a tree stand is the ability to call deer as well. Yeah. That's all. Uh, that's probably for, an, maybe I'm doing a series of deer hunting podcasts cause that's another I mean, it warrants lots of discussion, and there's there's really some benefits and drawbacks of of calling depending on where you are or where you're hunting. Because I, yeah. I I do think that it like we see so much of the um what we see in the media or not the media like the, what's what's shared in the states. Like a lot of folks out in the states where they're dealing with extremely high deer densities, mm-hmm. like that the deer are so competitive that calling is a a really effective tool for getting attention, but. And maybe like I think you're you're probably in an area with a pretty probably the highest deer density in BC. I'm I'm guessing. Um, yeah, that's probably safe to say. And this particular spot is an incredibly high deer density. So yeah, having said that, I I've, I'm not I don't I haven't had a lot of success calling deer overall. So it's definitely not my go-to method. And there there's probably other ex you know people that have expertise in that field. I don't think I'm one of them. Um, I prefer to probably just sit and watch. Yeah, I kind of prefer to, like, I I don't particularly like the idea of a deer looking for me because they're really they're way better at it than me looking for them. So as yeah. soon as you put the call out there, they're they're looking and they're 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 way better at hide and seek than you are. So yeah. I prefer to kind of get them when they're doing their own thing and you know cruising around and or bedded down sleeping and I can sneak up on them. But yeah. that's the that's my go to for sure. Yeah, and I'll, um, like I'll say, like I grew up you know, still hunting deer, that was sort of the method. And I think it's sort of a rite of passage, you know, as a new hunter to sort of do it that way to, it's a great skill set to try to learn. I mean, it kind of forces you to learn how to walk through the bush and how to look for tracks and look for the right habitats and try to spot deer before they spot you. You're good at it. And and some of the guys and girls you have in your camp know how to do it. I realized pretty early on that I was not very good at it. Like I, I killed elk and moose and mule deer before I ever killed my first whitetail. Like whitetail gave me fits for years. And it was because I was not a very good still hunter. Like uh, I have the patience to sit all day long, no problem. But I don't, I've realized I don't have the patience to walk 
as slowly and carefully as you need to through the bush to still hunt effectively. So that's kind of why I lean towards the, the sitting in blinds or tree stands versus still hunting. And uh, I know you, you tend to go the other way. Well, I think so. So Jeff Forsfield from the previous podcast, I think he said something in the podcast. It's like, I was asking him like, well, you know, where, you know, he's a lifetime of hunting behind him and like, what, and, and, and as you age too, this is something else that's relevant for, uh, you know, my mentors, a lot of them are aging, like they can't do it the way they used to, right? So they have to adapt how they hunt um, for effectiveness, right? And so like Larry, um, another one of my hunting mentors, he's 86, like he was a still hunter, he's a mountain hunter, a still hunter, and then, you know, um, backpack hunter. When he couldn't backpack hunt anymore, he bought ponies to, to pack his stuff with him. And when he couldn't, you know, walk his ponies anymore, he bought mules and then he was a mule hunt, hunt, you know, hunted with mules and like he's adapted. Right. And so now he hunts. So he, he was a tree stand hunter, but now he's not allowed to climb in and out of his tree because his wife says he's not allowed to. And we're all very happy about that. Um, so then he went to ground blinds, um, and he's been using ground blinds and now he's just, he just sits in his truck. He just sits in a spot and he brings, he salts, he brings, he builds his blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was his, his truck is his blind and he builds like his shooting quarters based on getting out of the truck and, mm-hmm. and, and setting up and shooting. Um, but it's kind of neat to see that evolution of like, you know, hunting, to, hunting to your ability. Um, but with Jeff, like he's, you know, all he's still in pretty good, sh- like walking shape and still can, he can definitely still, still hunt, but you know, we, we talked about that, like, you know, can you transition to being a sitter? And he's, and he's like, Oh God, I just don't like, I just, his, in his mind, he's like, I, you know, sitting, you just, you're just sitting there waiting for a deer to walk by to kill it. Like you, you don't kind of have this sort of process that leads up to it where you're sneaking in and you've done three or well, you've done about 50 things right to allow that deer to walk in on you. And you're kind of learning and screwing up the whole time all day long. And it's kind of this, but and I kind of agree with that, but having talked to you and, and knowing you know, the, of your process, it just feels like, I don't think you're just sitting there waiting for a deer to walk by to get killed. There's all of this process and learning and scouting and, you know, trial and error that's put in over the course of what amounts to the year. And it's just like a long, longer, it's a very long still hunt. You're just going ex- exceptionally slow. You're just, you're doing all that scouting and learning and screwing up over the course of the whole year. And then now you're just sitting in the spot waiting for it to come together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I like that. There, there's probably a lot more that goes into it uh, than you'd think maybe. Um, and yeah, again, I think it, maybe it's a strategy that might be better for, for a more like selective hunt if you're looking for a particular deer or particular like size or quality of deer um versus still hunting uh it's all i mean so that's one aspect of it it's also i've really enjoyed taking new hunters out to to hunt this way too it's all sort of feels almost like it's too easy sometimes um if you're not being selective, right? Like, cause you, you know, generally at these sites, you're going to see lots of deer throughout the day, does and bucks and maybe some big bucks, but generally lots of smaller bucks too. And uh, it's been a great way to take like brand new hunters out who have never shot at an animal before. Cause it's such a controlled scenario being in the blind. Uh, it's comfortable. It's a great, you know, we can set up the gun very steady. So you're getting steady shots and you get to watch, observe the deer for a little while and make sure you get like a nice broadside shot. And so that's been great, a great way to introduce people into that process. And then, so then you have a deer down and they get to learn the, you know, the field dressing process and everything, but it's almost, 
it's almost you don't pick up all those other skills that you know you get from still hunting where you've got to learn how to track and learn how to walk through the bush and orient yourself through different habitats so in that sense you're not getting the full meal deal out of it i feel but i think in the last three years i've taken three brand new hunters to do this and we've killed three deer in less than three hours combined you know what i mean so it's like it can be effective way but it's not the best way to pick up all the skills that you need to become a good hunter but it is it is a nice way to introduce a hunter in like a pretty controlled setting yeah i think that's so critical like the you'll be able to allow someone to see, well, number one, see deer, observe deer, hang out with deer. That's so cool. Right. And that just like, it builds so much inspiration to be a hunter. And then, and then, you know, for sure when it all comes together, especially, I mean, I'm going to say as a new hunter, even as a, as a 35 year old, 35 years into hunting, I still get to, like, I still get excited mm-hmm. and still like, I'm still shaken and that's not like it, that doesn't go away. Right. Yeah. Like, so to be, to be in an environment where you can control that and manage it and be there with the mentor to help talk you through it. And then also the deer is like, doesn't know you're there. So you have all the time in the world. Like it's, it's actually really like, it's really difficult to still hunt any animal on, on like, you know, mule deer included in a black like, you're basically deciding to get the hell out of there the whole time you're trying to get into a shooting position. And so it's like you're, you got, you're making, inevitably you're, you're, you're taking um, some chances there. Like it's, it's not a hundred percent shot. And I, I have this, I've had a lot of discussions with, you know, friends of mine in the hunting community, mountain hunting community that are comfortable taking longer shots. And, and I'm kind of down on it. I'm like, oh, like it's just there's so many variables at 400 plus yards. You know, it's, 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 the chances of missing are super high. But as I'm thinking that through, I'm like, man, there's just as many variables at shooting at a whitetail at 60 yards when your heart rate's up, deer's on alert, there's brush in between. Like it's just as like, you know, there's there's just as many elements that aren't necessarily in your favor. And if you can control those elements in in that scenario, it's a it's a really cool thing. Yeah, for sure. And especially for that first experience, you want it to be a good one, you know, a clean, calm shot and, and just to build that confidence in a new hunter to know that they can do it. And, uh, just to get that under their belt in this scenario, that's relatively controlled, I think is, is a really nice way to start. Cause yeah, the, the still hunting and trying to get clean, clear shots off at animals that aren't moving. Yeah, it's challenging. And it, it took me many, many years to be successful at it. And I'm still not very good at that. Yeah. Well, and I still have, you know, like I, I missed, I, yeah, I I didn't, I missed this year again. I'm like, oh man, like, and it was like, I'm I'm blown away. I'm like, how is that possible? And well, for another question, I'm, I, I may shoot a slower, bullet if i'm going to continue to hunt in these sort of thicker i'm finding myself hunting in thicker places too as i and i'm seeing more deer and kind of getting a little bit like yeah so i'm finding that i'm like oh man like yeah to manage to improve i feel like i could with a slower bullet i could maybe feel more comfortable taking the shot but yeah well we talked about that a bit off podcast but yeah that's sort of my style for elk hunting right is is in pretty thick brush and using a heavy slower bullet that can maybe help you make those shots a little more confidently yeah totally okay great well i think we've given people a bit of thoughts around you know i I love this process for first for well call it stand hunting and uh oh i didn't ask you but i was curious i was there was one thing i wanted to ask you like when you say bait like what what is bait like like i'm used to guys going and backing up with a 
bushel of apples and dumping them in the corner of their lot. Like right. I can't imagine you're necessarily doing that and moving all that around um, over the course of a day. No, but I mean, it's, it's not too dissimilar in the sense that I, you know, I do like to put out, if I'm going to bait, I'm going to put out lots for them to the deer to eat. But yeah, usually for me, it's a combination of hay and grain, like oats. That's pretty common up here. I think that's sort of the, the go-to. So like sort of an alfalfa hay as, as sort of the base and then uh, fill it with, with oats, especially once the, the bears go to sleep. So you're not uh, dealing with bears around your bait sites. That's when I start putting oats out. So that's that's what I use. Some of, There's other options like peas and corn and things like that. But that's pretty typical up here. Again, it's, it's sort of a pretty common practice up here in the Northeast. Um, Definitely not a strategy that you need to use to, to hunt in a blind, but it's it's a good way of just getting deer movement, getting deer in front of you. And again, like these big, big bucks, like they're not necessarily coming there to eat, um, mm-hmm. especially during the rut. They have pretty much one focus. So a lot of the time they're just coming to scent check. They're probably not stopping there to eat uh, for very long, if at all. And a lot of times they're just circling maybe downwind of the bait, like, 50 100 yards just to scent check it and moving on so yeah it's certainly not a slam dunk i'm there's probably a few misconceptions about it but um yeah it's not definitely not a slam dunk uh method but it's it's one tactic that if you know you put in your time i think it, it can it can work in some scenarios so you're basically creating like the bar environment like bringing people in serving them some liquor like getting that sort of it's a happening place yeah. and so like and then this big old buck comes into town he's like where, you know where do i go hang out if i want to like you know maybe meet a few people and yeah and like everyone's oh you should go down to uh yeah bridger's stand there it's got some lots of people hanging out that's right yeah do a quick cruise put out the vibe from the bar and then if uh if it's not a great site then they move on but you hope that you can build a site that's comfortable where you know again it's got security it's got everything they need you know where they're they're happy to go there midday even to look for ladies and uh, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of analogies we could go. Yeah, yeah but, totally. Uh, I think you just hit on one other thing, though, and I think it's important, and it's one thing we often overlook as hunters. And uh, we'll, we're going to move on to a couple of questions after, like, uh, we'll wrap things up here. But, uh, like, that that security piece. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that, like, you know, I've seen, I see this often with new hunters, and I'll, I'll like, they'll be rattling out in the middle of a field, yeah. essentially, or an open landscape or an open clear cut. They're out there clanging away with their antlers. And, and I, and I know without, I could, without any doubt that they will not see a deer like wandering out to a clear cut to investigate mm. some rattling. Like it, I think it's critical and I'm assuming that, you know, what is your sort of area look like in terms of security and cover for the setup? Yeah, really good point. And I think maybe in some of my like earlier endeavors, I was probably setting up in areas that were a bit too open because, you know, they're like they're inviting, right? Where you've got these nice sight lines and you're going to be able to see deer from far away and you may be able to set your blind way back and give yourself space. But yeah, I noticed that those sites definitely don't get the daytime activity. So that probably means they're not really near a bedding area. Like I, a lot of those open sites, I'd notice you'd get lots of nighttime activity when you check your cameras, but not much in the day. So now, yeah, I've definitely, I try to move into sort of thicker areas good timber i may not necessarily be right in the thickest timber but just knowing that there's thick timber nearby that's likely good bedding habitat i think is more likely to prompt some daytime activity at your site so 
yeah, I'm on like either really like narrow lines, cut lines, or I'm just in the, in the timber and, you know, try to brush out some shooting lanes and things like that, but try to keep a bunch of security there. So those deer are comfortable moving around during the day. And if you're, you know, if you set up at a site and you're always just getting nighttime activity, then yeah, you're probably, you're either, you know, you're, you're too close to, or too far probably from a bedding area is what I'd say. Yeah. It's amazing how much, I mean, you know, the, the camera information, it just provides so much information. Like I, like I, I'm so in, like, interested in this process because of, not only do you get to sort of see the bucks and your, whatever your target buck or the buck or the deer density, all that stuff is so obvious, but just, you know, when they're using these areas and like what they're doing and which way they're going. And like, it just, there's so much information. And if you've got enough cameras out there, you can really start to piece together an interesting story. Yeah, totally. Again, it's not a slam dunk using cameras, but I mean, you just, you can learn so much about an area and, and, uh, and on top of that, it's just a lot of, a lot of fun. Well, it just focuses your hunt a little bit, like yeah. it gives you more reason. So you're not just sitting in some random spot waiting for a deer to walk by and hopefully kill it. Yeah. You, you're kind of, the re, there's a reason why you're sitting in that spot. There's so much is informed where you're sitting, when you're sitting there and you know, what direction you're looking and what you expect. And, I, and that, that's really interesting. So I think yeah. you really, I, I really appreciate you sharing your process because I mean, there's a lot to it and, and, um, and just kind of encouraging. I'm going to apply it sort of locally here and, and keep you posted as to my successes locally um, but i have some questions for you because sure. we have a number of people who support this spot this podcast and um one of which is our friends at beer beer b-e-e-r-e beer they make amazing beer in north vancouver and uh the question that they're going to bring to the podcast is um can you um tell me a real beer moment so tell me about an experience or an accomplishment that was just made for a beer moment you know like yeah. Oh man. When you wish someone had just pulled out a cold beer out of their pack and you're like, Oh my God. Right. <laughs> Something like that. So many. <laughs> well, be honest, like, uh, in the last few years in our stone sheep hunting adventures, we've, um, we've become more like gentlemanly in our hunts where they're not as like hardcore as they used to be when I was younger. So some of the places we're going into are a little easier to access and gives us the the ability to even bring in a few beers on our stone sheep hunts, oh. which, you know, for anyone that's hunted stone sheep know that that's quite a luxury <laughs> and usually not really doable. But uh, I can think of a few, you know, coming back, say maybe from a spike out for a week or so and getting back. I remember getting back to our sort of base camp where we had beers stashed in the creek um, that have been unbelievable. I don't know how it's, you can't match that refreshing I, a lot of the time, actually, like when I know there's a beer that I'm hiking back to, I'll intentionally not drink water for a prolonged period. So I'm so thirsty <laughs> when I get back to that beer. It's just like unbelievably refreshing. So, yeah, it's probably one of those mountain beers that's been soaking in a little stream for five or six days and coming back for that. Uh, yeah, that's tough to beat. Yeah, we had a we had a case of beer in the creek and we came off the Sheep Mountain yeah, we had an afternoon pickup scheduled uh, with Erst, and uh, we were coming down the trail at like eleven thirty, back to our base camp on the lake, walking along the edge of the lake, and there's these like giant like lake trout swimming, you know, right along the edge of the lake, and I'm just like, 
oh man, I'm going to drink beer and catch fish all afternoon. This is going to be great. And just as we like got back to our base camp, like even before we were able to reach into the creek and grab a beer, the the airplane comes <laughs> lands and now we're in a full panic to get yeah. our shit together to get in the plane. Yeah, kind of spoiled yeah. the moment. <laughs> totally. I could, yeah. All right, all right, all right. So another one to um, our, our we another sponsor of ours is uh, the Seek Outside folks and they make uh, really amazing, well, for me, that this is the game changer gear question and they make these ultra light tents you can put a stove in that's really prolonged by comfort in hunting season being able to actually backpack a tent into the backcountry with a wood stove and into the alpine and just be comfortable and warm and be able to dry out ultimately it's just a game changer some of the tech they put into these um ultralight tents and they also make super light packs and a bunch of other interesting gear that that um, shaves a few ounces and still tough gear um so from our friends at Seek Outside, tell us about a game changer piece of equipment or gear that's made your hunting more effective, more comfortable, or just something you rely on that's sort of new to you and um, as part of your quiver of tools or gear. Yeah, well, I mean, I can think of a lot of pieces that are pretty crucial. I think sort of a nice little luxury that I've picked up for the backpack hunting um, in particular a few friends turned me onto it a few years ago and that's those ultra light, uh, backpack chairs. Um, I'm trying <laughs> to remember as I, I don't recall the brand, so I guess I won't give them any free advertising, but these little aluminum framed fold up chairs that, you know, they weigh less than mm-hmm. a pound. They pack down to nothing. And yeah, I started taking those on the sheep hunts the last few years and man, that is a game changer to, just to have a nice little chair to sit in when you're back at camp, even, just to get, you know, have a backrest and instead of sort of being crumpled up on the rocks or in the moss, like having that chair has been a real game changer. So that, uh, that is probably the one piece that I've really enjoyed adding to the, the repertoire the last few years. Part of it being more gentlemanly, as yeah. you said, or like more, more, a little more sophisticated as a sheep hunter, you're prepared to like pack a pound for, you know, being comfortable and being able to sit longer and glass longer and yeah, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, no, I definitely buy into that for sure. Um, the uh, the last question I'm going to ask you is from our friends at the BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. So they do good conservation work here in BC, and of course across North America. Um, what I like about what BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers are doing, they're just uh, like throughout all of BC, they've got regional chapters. So there's probably one up by you in Region Seven B. And it just bringing together like a young community of hunters to talk about conservation and, and build community and find other folks to, you know, partner on conservation, but also partner in hunting and, and share knowledge. So I encourage folks to get out there and find uh, um, a BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers meeting in their neighborhood or in their region. So from our, their question from them is, what is your dream hunt in British Columbia? Where would you want to go and how would you want to do it? feel like I may have given this answer maybe on a previous podcast with you but I don't think it's changed and I still have this desire to hunt Roosevelt elk at some point in my hunting career preferably before I get too old and cronky I would love to get on yeah the sort of the the sunshine coast there on the mainland in the Roosevelt elk jungle uh, and chase those elk around just something different probably a lot of suffering involved in that hunt by the sounds of it but just something you know, being a bit of an elk nut, uh, 
yeah, that is definitely the dream of mine. I'm going to keep applying right till the bitter end. have never drawn a tag yet, but uh, a guy can hope and dream, right? Yeah, totally. Well, and you can, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, I think like those are such challenging hunts. I mean, I, yeah, I think that there's a, the, the odds are low enough and it's worth looking at them. And I think they're, they're adding more hunts every year because, because they're hard hunts and because they're not, they're low success hunts, but I still think there's an opportunity to, to find a hunt that could work for you. And if you knew a guy with a boat, you know, on, you know, on the Sunshine Coast, you'd be in luck, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> if only, hey, I'm sure I can make if a few only. phone calls. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. This is, yeah, cool, man. Well, this has been really fun, man, hanging out with you. And, and uh, I encourage everybody to come check, you know, for sure, uh, you know, I'll mention it in the in the preamble to this podcast, uh, checking out your, your Instagram feed. But if people want to find you, where do they find you? Oh yeah, I mean you can find me on Instagram. I do. I I keep a private account for now, but if you uh, it looks like oh, okay. we, we have similar uh, passions, I'll definitely uh, invite you or uh, accept your request and probably follow you back. But yeah, I'm on Instagram uh, at bc underscore bridger. That's probably the best place to find me. And yeah, I like to try to share a bit of stuff on there from time to time. So yeah, hopefully that's interesting and helpful to folks. Right on. Anyways, anyways, Mike, it's been a lot of fun hanging out with you and filling me in on the whitetail season and getting me inspired to um, step up my camera and pre-scouting. And and I was scouting today. Season's over here for Blacktail, but I was out there scouting around with Mickey and we've got a couple ridges that we're going to look at real close. And I think there's going to be a couple more um, cameras under the tree from Santa this year. So yeah. I'm well on my way to figuring this out, but I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and and passion for this stuff and yeah, thanks so much for what you do yeah no totally i stoked to be back here chatting with you and hopefully the, the listeners uh, can gain something useful from this totally totally okay i'm gonna, I'm gonna stop the recording but don't go anywhere for a second hey folks i hope you enjoyed that podcast now we'd love to hear from you so drop us a question either on our instagram or email me directly at dylan at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. There are tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, we do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and wild. Well.